Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. minute where we dream up delicious recipes for snake from mad max to the road warrior one minute at a time i'm rick and i'm julia and today we're talking about minute 45 which begins with the gyro captain delighting in the effectiveness of his snake trap and it ends with max finally getting to reload his shotgun hi julia hello it's fresh eyes friday it is means we have a special guest we and do. today that special guest is none other than ethan mckinley from two minute terminator tgif hello everyone you've probably heard me on other minute shows as a guest and now I'm on this one. Uh, it is me, Ethan McKinley, from the Two Minute Terminator. Hopefully you didn't get bored of listening to all five movies I did back to back to back without any breaks in between. I've come back now to haunt you in the in the wasteland with uh, Mel Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He has come back as if in a magical time bubble to plop down in the midst of us awkwardly naked. So why don't <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll have to send you over to a biker bar to steal some clothes. <laughs> They called him the Road Warrior. <laughs> to understand his podcast, you'd have to go back to a time before. <laughs> so, Ethan, how did you get roped into doing all of the Terminator movies? Probably my weird Asperger's dyslexic... Uh, is it an affliction? Is it a, a, a gift? I have no idea. I think when I did the first one, I just wanted to get some kind of podcast experience. And I enjoyed it so much doing it with Ellie, my esteemed co-host, uh, I just thought, let's do Terminator 2. That's even an even better movie than the first one, arguably. And then when we got to that, we were like, well, that's pretty good. Now, I don't know. I think when we got to uh, 2, it was such a good film. We ended up kind of just enjoying the film and not actually like breaking it down as much. So I think we went, we'll make up for it by doing 3, because that was such kind of a bad movie, I guess. And then 3, 4, and 5 were fun because they were kind of almost like red letter media kind of takedowns of this uh these like patchy if you will uh films so i enjoyed all of it as did ellie but i'm now trying to twist her arm to do perhaps a, a sixth season for the sarah connor chronicles we shall see apart from that you've asked me of course to mention was it worth it my other show where i take a simple man who's seen very few actual like films i'm not like I guess boast uh, not boasting kind of like underselling that this guy has seen very few large franchise films anything uh, you'd consider legendary uh, and I make him watch a classic film and then we find out if it was actually worth it from a modern perspective so we've had like uh, The Thing The Dead Zone it 1990 it 2017 so that's kind of what we're up to now about 20 episodes in so uh, that's where we are I guess nice and then I think you have a third one is that right a third podcast that you do uh there is that's questionable uh it's very difficult sadly to put on because i reach out to people who i think as we discussed before we started recording and i'm sure a lot of our listeners and fellow podcasters will know this reaching out to people as a guest is hard because a lot of people shockingly i guess to our listeners and you guys that uh, they don't know what podcasting is and it, you have to explain that it's kind of radio and it's this and it's but it's online and stuff so uh that's one i do every once in a while when i can get the guest my last guest of course was peter kent arnold schwarzenegger's lifelong stuntman and stunt double which is a pretty amazing get i'll admit that yeah but luckily i mean he found us but i've had like uh directors of bbc drama and i've had graham hancock a very famous egyptologist and author i'm trying to think who's next kelly de brock i'm now kind of like flirting with but i'm being thwarted by our assistants the dreaded <laughs> assistants when they hand you over to some like 
they agree to come on on Twitter. Uh, this has happened a few times with guests, and then they hand you over to their people in commas, and then their people who are PR but have never bizarrely heard of podcasting, and they uh, they fade away into the background, a bit like Max. <laughs> <laughs> I can appreciate the metaphor. Yeah, it's like get. Here we go. Here's a better one. Getting a guest, uh, a semi-famous guest, to come on your show is as difficult as finding uh, petroleum or gas. It's a daily struggle, but uh, we carry on. We drive on to the next thing. Hopefully, we can find a dead body and pull pull a lead out of their pocket <laughs> to get us another guest. <laughs> Nice. I like it. I think that's actually a great lead in into the minute proper. So minute 45, the first thing we see is Max Dog and the gyro captain. They have finally returned to the spot where the gyrocopter was parked. And wouldn't you know it, they find a buggy and a wastelander just lying dead of a supposed snake bite. I think would be the main cause of death. But the thing I want to focus on first is actually a tail end bit of dialogue from Minute 44. The gyro captain is reminiscing about the time before the collapse. And he says, oh, do you remember lingerie? Lingerie. And the (laughs) first thing I thought of was how ill-equipped someone would be in the wasteland if they were wearing lingerie, because it is just not durable enough. Well, to skip ahead, one might argue that chainmail lingerie, 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 I'm English, sorry, sorry, listeners, uh, worn by Tina Turner's auntie entity was uh, more more than capable. In fact, a lot of the kind of uh, the guard-type characters from uh, Bar to Town were in uh, naughty, racy underwear-type things, weren't they? But I guess it wasn't conventional Victoria's Secret-type stuff. <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> I draw the comparison with lingerie to what Lord Humongous is wearing, mm-hmm. which is lingerie-esque, I suppose, in its amount of coverage. Very sexy. Although his outfit is made of leather, so yeah. a little more durable. But there's nothing to say lingerie can't be made of leather. <laughs> I'm, I'm not familiar with the hard and fast rules, and pardon that choice of phrasing, <laughs> of bondage gear versus lingerie. Like, at what point... Is it just the the materials? Like, is lace always lingerie? Is leather always bondage gear? I think the line is the intention. Yeah. Yeah. Although, having said that, there are some rules, because I do have some experience in, I guess, the bondage world. My limited experience, because as you know, I sent you a picture of me at a Mad Max party in in London many, many years ago with all my friends, and we were all kind of uh, like decked out in Mad Max outfits. But that club itself... That was just a Mad Max night, but the cl- the other nights it does. Uh, not that I've been to things. I'm a, I'm a I'm a a good boy who's led a quiet and blameless life. Uh, it's actually a <laughs> fetish club, and I think the rules to get in is leather, rubber, or military. So I guess they're the three, the holy trinity of things you'd have to wear to get into a fetish club. That night in particular was more a kind of steampunk type, I guess metal everyone was kind of dressed in like chain mail and i kind of replicated as best i could mel gibson's uh like mad max 2 look of course with like the the rolling shoulder pad over the one shoulder and things and uh stuff so yeah i'll, I'll post it actually on my twitter ethan mckinley uk so you can actually see it. it's uh it's it's pg don't worry folks but uh yeah we all went as uh people from bar to town and mad max himself and stuff like that no gyro captains weirdly but i guess you can't really get into a club like that in a onesie and a leather jacket it's surprising well, because shame. the aesthetic of the gyro captain we were talking about it yesterday or the day before it was one of those i can't quite remember 
remember, but he's very bright in his color choice, and it's very aesthetically interesting. It is. It's, uh, of course, played by Bruce Spence, the Australian character actor, lovable scamp that he is. It's, it's, I always found it kind of, uh, yeah, odd that he'd be wearing that, but I guess uh, if you're flying around, I guess, do you need to be seen? There's no FAA, is there, I guess? so. No. Plus, when you think, most of these days, when you see people out flying, a lot of the times they're wearing leggings. And he mm. happens to be wearing spandex leggings. They're bright yellow, of course. But, you know, if it's comfortable for people flying pre-apocalypse, you can imagine that it's just as comfortable post-apocalypse. Maybe it's what Australian pilots actually wear. We just don't know. It's like the, it's the big open secret if you, like, burst into the cockpit of a... A passenger jet. <laughs> All the pilots would be there in like kind of like multicolored onesies and like, like that, that World War One Battle of Britain style leather helmet he's wearing. I love the idea. I know, of right? <laughs> a pilot walking onto a plane in the classic suit jacket and pants, but they are secretly Velcro tearaway pants, like you would see on a basketball court. They get into that cockpit, shut that door, and just Velcro it right off, and it's bright yellow spandex. Yeah, the way Connery pulls <laughs> off his wetsuit, and is it Goldfinger, and he's got a perfectly crisp tux underneath. Mm-hmm. It's in reverse. It's like the, the, the suit, but it's uh, you tear it off, and you're down to the onesie. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So as they're walking into this scene with the buggy and the dead wastelander and the gyrocopter, the gyro captain drops the gas tanks once again, them hitting the ground, sounding completely empty. <clears throat> And he is all excited because he yells, I knew it, I knew it would work. Lethal, lethal, these snakes, born killers. And he runs over and he picks up the remains of this snake that he's had left by the gyrocopter. And uh, so I'm looking at this snake, this very green looking, very limp looking snake. And I had a wonder, is this one of the 10 most deadliest snakes in Australia. So I went out and I found a list of the 10 most deadliest snakes of Australia. They include things like the Eastern Brown, the Western Brown, the Mainland Tiger Snake, the Inland Taipan, the Coastal Taipan, the Mulga Snake, Lowlands Copperhead, Small-Eyed Snake, Common Death Adder, and Red-Bellied Black Snake. Would you like to guess which one of those are naturally green? Is it none of them? None of them. None of them. (laughs) (laughs) You guys hit it right nail Right on top of the head. If you were bitten by one of those snakes, though, I mean, how quickly would the poison take effect that you'd kind of drop dead within 20 feet of being bitten by it? Or is that just movie physics, Ethan? I think it's movie physics. Yeah. I don't know for sure, mm-hmm. but 20 feet does seem like an awfully quick death yep. from the- a snake bite. The interesting thing about Australian venomous snakes is that there are surprisingly few deaths because anti-venom is so readily available. Mm. People have been trapping and milking and formulating antivenoms from these snakes for decades now. So you look at places like the Philippines and the Polynesian Islands, you get uh, many more snake deaths there because antivenom is so hard to come by. Mm. But in Australia, they've been living with these snakes for hundreds of years, and so they just know how to deal with them. The thing about these venoms is that a lot of the times they have coagulating features so you get injected with the venom and then your blood inside your vein gets really thick and it stops your heart right so looking at this situation the wastelander is dead the snake is dead he probably got bit by the snake injected with the venom and then was so angry at the situation killed the snake and then had no anti-venom and so he could have gone 10 feet he could have gone 200 feet you know he would have been dead either way yeah which is a rather dismal situation to find yourself in you survive (laughs) 
so long in the wasteland and you get taken out by a snake. Is the snake dead as well then in this clip? Because I was debating whether or not whether it actually was or it wasn't because he says he's going to eat it. So I'm assuming it is. Oh, yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah, I think so. What was the snake died of? (laughs) I'm willing to bet probably blunt force trauma. I'm willing to bet the guy that was was bitten. Yeah. The guy that was bitten by the snake probably took that snake's head and bashed it against the ground a couple of times. Oh, because when you've been bitten and you're angry and you've got that masculine rage, you start hitting things and whatnot. Like the end of a love affair. <laughs> <laughs> so based on the gyro captain's reaction to the scene and the snake working, is this the first time that it's been put to the test and has worked? It kind of sounds it's that way, doesn't security it? Security system? Hmm. <laughs> well, no, because he mentions that Mel in the previous uh, like minutes that he's got reflexes and I've never seen a man beat the snake before. So I guess maybe he has seen it more than a few times. But I just think how we keep the snakes step to the gyro. Like, I guess he gets them out of the wild, doesn't he? Because he has to keep replenishing his snakes if they die like this in this situation. So, I mean, I guess you'd have to zip tie its tail on there or something. It would, it, it would just bugger off, wouldn't it? If it if you just uh, attached it or wrapped it around the, uh, I guess, the column of the gyro thing coming out the coming out of the engine. Exactly. Well, he mentions that they're trained snakes. So I'm guessing that's an aspect of the training to hang around on the... Stay there. <laughs> Stay there. <laughs> you get that snake really used to the warmth and comfortable area right. on that mast because he's sitting right next to the engine. And I imagine you get that much metal out in the warm sun, it's going to be a really nice, warm environment for those snakes to hang out on. Mm. I think... If you provide them with food, mm-hmm. they're going to stay too. Exactly. Frozen mice. I mean, <laughs> it's really impressive that he was able to train this specific snakes it's one of those hollywood rubber snakes that seem to be so deadly the old bottle green rubber deadly <laughs> yep <laughs> particularly difficult to train what i like about the area around the gyrocopter is that with the marked exception of the footprints of the dead wastelander it's largely untouched you've still got that little divot from where bruce spence burst out of the ground mm-hmm. the gyrocopter hasn't moved anywhere it's like we're just returning to it mostly how we left it i don't think he needs snakes i don't even think he needs to kind of bury himself next to the gyro he's in such a bizarre outfit he could hide in the scrub or the bushes and then just come running out and even if it was like 50 yards you'd just be going why why what what does he dress like that for Who's that? <laughs> you'd be calculating who and what and why he was dressed like that. he'd be close enough to you to bash your head in by the time you're like oh he's trying to attack me <laughs> he does strike me as an overthinker yeah he does he's got those brains he's got to use them yeah I love the idea of bum-rushing someone and surprising them. It kind of reminds me of that one scene where Lancelot is rushing the wedding at the castle in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Grail. And it's just they loop that footage of him running up over the ridge. It's the same scene. Four or five times until, boom, he's there. And he's just on top of him. (laughs) (laughs) He only kills one guard, and then the other guard sees him run into the castle, and he just leans forward and says, Hey, where are you going? (laughs) And I could see Bruce Spence pulling that off because he is a large, intimidating guy, but he's also goofy enough to confound people. He's the mouth of Sauron, no less, as well. Exactly. I like to think that that character, and because he doesn't play the, sorry, spoilers, in Mad Max 3, he plays another gyro type captain, but not actually him. They're the same character. He just kind of like uh, evolved. And this is like pre-Middle Earth. So like the Earth starts over again, kind of thing. 
You know, it's funny. At the end of this movie, the gyro captain goes with the compound dwellers and they form the great northern tribe. Mm. Now, who's to say that that great northern tribe doesn't become the land of Mordor? Exactly. And the feral child grows up to be the chieftain of that tribe. Well, maybe that feral child becomes Sauron and employs the gyro captain as his mouth. Makes sense because it's very polluted. It's like black. The skies are gray. Yeah. Yeah. They use, I, I do think they use oil and stuff, don't they? It's very like, well, it's a metaphor for industry. I think what uh, Tolkien was trying to say with those films and Mordor especially is obviously representative of that. So I think you're right. <laughs> We've just cracked it. We've just done a shared universe. <laughs> exactly. Mad Max touches more things than we realize. Exactly. <laughs> it's funny to think that the hole is still there because when we first saw Bruce Spence burst forth from the ground, that was back in minute 11. And we're here now in minute 45 over half an hour later <laughs> they've still not made their kind of i guess firm friendship yet there's still like mistrust between them isn't there so yeah very much so yeah that'll happen when one of them is holding the other captive yeah and forcing him to do his work this is true i well he's, he kind of pays him back as well in a sense though doesn't he because he kind of had him uh he tried to kill him initially <laughs> it's kind of a strange aesthetic as well isn't it it's a i guess I'm not sure what it is deep in our DNA, but we all seem to have this kind of like weird, like end of the world post-apocalypse fantasy of like all the like all the zombie films, or if there was a zombie apocalypse, how you'd survive. And I think a lot of filmmakers have ripped off unsuccessfully this, but it's kind of a genre in and of itself, especially in the eighties. It's kind of like chrome and leather. Mm-hmm kind of post-apocalyptic uh, search for fuel or something it's kind of a it's kind of a strange i'm not sure what it is innately in ourselves as people that kind of draws us to this kind of thing this kind of like uh, morbid fantasy of what we'd do if it was a like a survival thing i'm not sure it's a, it's an interesting notion i think but uh yeah i think it speaks to everybody individually the idea that even though everything is falling apart around you you have the resilience and human drive to power through Mm. and using the iconography of the dark leather and the chrome and the metal it's a very resilient collection of materials Mm. sort of a metaphor in and of itself for overcoming what nature can throw at you using the power of manufactured human goods yeah it's also like a no-brainer in terms of i mean like i said a million filmmakers and producers have tried to recapture this kind of mad max theme there's like god what is it high noon at the end of the universe wheels of fire that thing is uh, patrick swayze steel dawn there's that thing with sam jones is it the highwayman that tv show from like the late 80s they've all kind of made an attempt to kind of capture that and no one except for george miller has really ever been able to kind of pull it off and have it i, I guess vaguely credible and not have it kind of look like a hokey mess which of all these kind of mad max ripoffs of like exterminate from year 3000 that's another one i saw as a kid on like v VHS, like uh yeah it's kind of strange that no one's ever been able to kind of like really do it except for george miller i knew he kind of invent he did invent the genre but uh like we've had sci-fi and everyone's had their stab at that successfully or unsuccessfully over the years but uh, no one's ever been able to really do like a mad max apart from the mad max people or george miller as it were Mm -hmm. one thing that i really like about what you see in these types of movies is how inventive people can get and we see that firsthand here with the gyro captain he's picked up this dead snake off the ground and he is very adamant about one fact in particular that it's his snake he trained it he's gonna eat it (laughs) i love that he's not really sad that a trained snake is dead it's just moved on from one usefulness to another usefulness (laughs) Mm -hmm. he's gonna eat it 
he's also on the kind of the same social level as the dog at this point. So them fighting over it, it's kind of like uh, whoever gets it gets it. I think it's uh, it's this, this strange little melodrama that's playing off in the background. And yeah. Max, as indifferent as he always is, just uh, rifling through this guy's pockets to kind of find something of use to him. But it's like behind them, there's this kind of like man and a dog, but. Uh, there's, neither one is the kind of dominant force. They're both like equally matched as, in, in the social, I guess, strata, as it were. Mm -hmm. It's a nice rematch because when Dog and the captain were fighting over the Dinky Die Dog food, the dog came out on top and he got to have first dibs. Well, now this is the rematch where they're fighting over food once again. Mm. And so the gyro captain now has the upper hand because he's got his hands on the food this time. And so he's going to make sure that he keeps that snake away from dog did mel actually eat that dog food was it real dog food it was not real dog food george miller was talking about it on the commentary and he couldn't remember exactly what it was but it was definitely not real dog food right it was some sort of processed canned human food yeah <laughs> that type of thing but going into the idea of eating snakes i've looked up a couple of different things from the dailymeal.com they comment that rattlesnake specifically which is not rubber snake or anything that you specifically find in australia but they say that rattlesnake when it's breaded and fried is very similar to a sinewy half-starved tilapia that's according to someone writing for the new york times right sometimes people refer to rattlesnake as desert whitefish in the southwest and it's reportedly bland and difficult to eat tough sinewy and full of bones and there's very little way in the actual flavor department you have to peel it like a banana day because i've seen those survival shows they kind of like they cook a snake but they kind of peel it so it's just like i guess the layer underneath it's kind of like a strange i've seen like a bear grill show where they kind of like peel the snake like a banana and just to like get the bit inside really or the meat yep i looked up on gmanetwork.com when you're preparing snake obviously it's dead you cut its head off so you mm -hmm. don't have to deal with any of the venom sacs but then yeah you t sort of skin it much like a fruit where you can just start at one end and peel it all the way down and then you can cut it along its belly remove the internal organs and whatnot and then you have to go and get the meat off of the spine mm. which the spine goes down obviously the entire length because it's a vertebrate and there are ribs everywhere in that thing so it makes eating it rather difficult mm. the deboning process is the tricky part uh, eating it raw or cooked did you get that far with it is it dangerous to eat a snake raw it's very ill-advised okay to be eating snake raw i actually found three or four different ways of preparing snake so the first one that I found on the list is a Chinese snake soup. So it's very popular in Canton, a city in southern China. It's very popular in Hong Kong. In Chinese tradition, consuming snake soup has spiritual and medicinal properties ranging from curing malaria, easing joint pains, and even warding off evil spirits. Oh. It's especially popular during winter when it's believed that snake soup wards off illness brought about by cold winds. So the exact recipe varies depending on what you're trying to cure between, you know, cold or malaria or anything like that. Very scientific. The broth <laughs> contains chicken, abalone, mushrooms, pork, ginger, and of course, snake meat. Chrysanthemum leaves are sprinkled on top to add some sweetness, and it produces a spicy dish with a subtly herbal taste. Mm. Given the amount of ingredients involved, that's probably not great for the wasteland the next one up is breading and frying which you can do with uh, snake strips it's a popular frontiersman meal because you can use breadcrumbs and whatnot mm. you soak it over in salt water to get rid of some of that gaminess and then you dip it in egg whites roll it through cornmeal and fry it up till it's golden brown 
I'd imagine stewing it so it just comes off the bone quite easily but the most efficient way of perhaps having a decent meal experience out of it because otherwise it just sounds like a very tough uh, difficult thing like when sometimes you have a fish and there's still too many bones in it and you end up more kind of deconstructing it as opposed to enjoying a meal yeah it just sounds tedious mm -hmm. it does you can also stir fry snake <laughs> um stir frying is actually the second most popular way to serve snake in china you soak the snake meat in wine and vinegar for about an hour and then uh, glass noodles and wonton pieces are fried separately in oil next the garlic and ginger is fried as well then you get a mix of celery peppers daikon and tangerine peels are added in followed by the snake wine mixture and then you stir for about three minutes then add glass noodles to the mix and when done the snake dish is topped with fried wonton pieces to give some variety to its flavor and texture the specific mode of preparation that the gyro captain mentions in this minute is that he has fricassee of reptile which apparently is better than dog food having never prepared a fricassee myself i looked it up on the internet because that's what i do fricassee is a method of cooking meat in which it is cut up sauteed and braised and then served with its sauce can traditionally a white sauce julia child in mastering the art of french cooking describes it as halfway between a saute and a stew in that a saute has no liquid added uh, while a stew includes liquid from the beginning so in a fricassee you take your cut up meat you saute it a bit but not enough to really be browned then you add liquid and let it simmer until it finishes cooking so it's something that the gyro captain could very easily do with just cooking pans and some water or makeshift broth or something like that anyone feeling that or do you want dog food <laughs> i still want to get the dog food i think well, the captain does make a really good point about getting protein and vitamins. Mm -hmm. So I think that outweighs the taste or the troublesome preparations. Mm -hmm. I think it'd be interesting in any survival situation how far you're willing to bend if you were in this, if you're not eating for three days and someone had a bowl of sauteed uh, snake fricassee or whatever. How how many of us would go? Yeah, it's uh, yeah. Let's, let's choose <laughs> <Yeah>. life. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Sustenance is sustenance. <laughs> Do you guys know exactly where this was shot? This, uh, I know you mentioned the rocks and things previously that they're encamped on watching the mm -hmm. refinery, but uh, this little, like, uh, I guess, bend in the road, if you will, with the, the tree and stuff, is that uh, a place? Was that kind of put in production design-wise, some of these stumps, or is it an actual kind of... Uh, does it have a name? Because it's all just desert in Australia, isn't it? So this specific spot, if I remember right, because it's been uh, several minutes since we talked about this... <laughs> Uh, if you go about half an hour north of Broken Hill, you'll reach a dried riverbed whose name I can't quite remember. But it's this scene was filmed right off of a dirt road that just goes north out of town. I was assuming this was America as a kid. Oh, no, this is Australia. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as a kid, I just assumed, because all the films I used to watch were American. That's where I kind of absorbed my movie culture from. And I didn't understand like what Australia was. I just assumed everyone was American, and this was what would happen to America if you dropped a nuclear bomb on it. Because only too much later, I was like, oh, it's Australia. That's what it looks like anyway. Fair enough. Yeah. Sorry, Australia. You have a lovely country. I didn't mean to make it sound like it looks like a, a post-apocalyptic wasteland. But thank God. It's okay. We have parts of that too. Yeah. <laughs> Where are you guys exactly based then? We so are from New Hampshire. Okay. So up in New England, where we do not have scenery like this. No. This post-apocalyptic like wasteland. I assume. Yeah, yes. but like a younger, hipper version of England. <laughs> A bit yeah. like the village, but modern day with hipsters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm not Shyamalan film. 
<laughs> so all of this time that we've been talking about snakes and eating snakes, that's all been the gyro captain off to one side. Max is kind of doing his own thing in this minute, mm. specifically picking over the remains of this dead wastelander. And one of the first things that we see him do is lean down and start picking through the belt pouches of this wastelander. And he starts off by uh, finding a six-sided die and he turns it over and then tosses it away. It's for the Dungeons & Dragons fans. Yeah, I say he's not realizing the usefulness of a chance cube. They're very handy if you meet a Scottish stranger who wants to gamble the ownership of two slaves on a race, even though, let's be real, no pod is worth two slaves. Exactly. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> they should have put the gyro uh, captain's, uh, what is it, gyrocopter in uh, Watto's junkyard, I think. <laughs> That would have been an amazing reference. Because you've got the 2001 like little pod, haven't you? There's mm-hmm. the front of that with a little round window in it, so it would have been, uh, yeah. <laughs> it also reminds me, there's a book, actually, I grew up on. I used to read lots of uh, fantasy role-playing books where it's like, go to page 37 if you want to do this or this and that. There used to be one uh, called Freeway Fighter. It was a great book, and uh, this bit always very much reminded me of that. I know, obviously, that's where they got the idea from, from this film. But, uh, yeah, this idea that kind of once you're dead, you're dead and you're, you're this kind of like... Uh, smorgasbord of kind of uh, free objects a bit like the claw machine in a fair yep. yeah <laughs> did you say that choose your own adventure book was called freeway fighter i did yeah i gotcha i'll send you a link to it when we when we after we wrap up but uh yeah there's a there's a whole like series of them written by steve jackson i believe there's one called death trap dungeon freeway fighter uh island of the lizard king they're all these great kind of like uh books when i guess you the only fantasy in film really was crawl and stuff like that and maybe I guess Lord of the Rings, the animated version from 1977, the back she won. So mm-hmm. I think I was very much into Dungeons and Dragons back then. I was literally the British version of one of the kids from Stranger Things. So I used to like absorb myself in uh, like all these fantasy role playing books. They were amazing. But uh, yeah, him just going through his pockets reminded me of one of those kind of like you've come to a, a fork in the road as it were in the book and you're kind of like going shall i go to this page or shall i do that and and you know you guys know this you and oh, you, yeah. like, you oh, turn yeah. to the wrong page and you're dead that's I... why you always keep your finger where you came from so that if you die really <laughs> fast you just jump back and pick the other way when i was a wee lad goosebumps came out with a line of choose your own adventure books and one of them was going into a haunted house and i made a wrong turn very early on in this book where you're standing on the front porch of this haunted house and there are cops coming down the road and obviously you're trespassing so you need to do something you can either go through the door or you can break right well i broke right and i turned to the page and it says you fall through the floorboard of the front deck you are now half trapped in the deck the cops find you and bring you home story's over and i'm wow. like come on short story <laughs> yeah yes. always keep your finger where you came from which is from uh, the last tango in paris uh, minute mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so after max tosses away the six-sided dice he pulls out something else from another pouch and it's very jangly it's very shiny ethan did you get a good look at it to see if you could identify it you know what it reminded me of i thought it was like a little like bicycle chain that would drive the back wheel of a bike in fact in the first movie one of the punks kind of like throws a chain at his escaping car <laughs> and he kind of is that's the kind of the hand that gets torn off and he's like when he get, like finds it later on the film i thought it was some kind of like uh chain to wrap around things but i guess it's some sort of necklace or trinket right mm-hmm Julia, what did you think it was? I went with a chain, but it looked like it had... Little bulbs or something. Yeah, things on it. I theorized that he was using it as a weapon, Mm -hmm. that he would like whip the chain around and having these extra little bits on it would 
cause extra damage and extra pain to his victims. So one thing that I like to do sometimes is really slow down the footage to get a good look at stuff. But the way Max is handling this and whipping around, it looks like, to me at least, a chain with spark plugs plugs hanging off of it. Oh. As if this Wastelander has collected spark plugs as either supplies to replace Mm. his own spark plugs when they go out, or every time he disables a vehicle, he makes sure to take the spark plugs so that way people can't follow him. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's trophies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd never have thought of that. Well done. I'd be dead already in this world. I would never think to take the spark plugs. But Max doesn't have any need for those, so he just tosses them. Yep. (laughs) Besides, the real treasure is actually deeper in that pocket underneath the spark plugs because Max is able to pull out two shotgun shells, which are worth their weight in gold. Yeah, one of them is kind of like a dud though, isn't it? Because it falls apart in his hands or he kind of like the seal on the back of it, I guess, with the firing uh, area at the back. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about guns. I'm from England. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from England. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, it kind of falls apart, doesn't it? So is that three shells or two? Let me just skip back. Scroll back. So while you're looking at that, he does find two. The first one he pulls out and what he does is he presses it on the side of it. Ah. Because the way those shotgun shells, you've got the, the firing cap at the end and you've got the plastic of the shell itself self and then it's capped off so all of your pellets are in the front your powder and igniter are towards the back and so he's pressing at that connection between the brass at the back of the shell and the plastic in the middle and it just crumbles in his hand as he's pressing on it It really doesn't have a lot of structure to it and luckily for him the second one that he finds is nice and firm but as far as ammunition is concerned if you're properly storing your ammo it will last for decades i mean there are stories on online forums that people will go up into their attics and they'll find ammunition from the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and they'll take it out and they'll shoot with it and it'll go just fine but you've got to follow a couple of simple storage principles when it comes to ammunition you got to keep it in a cool dry dark location right so you keep it cool because like dog food it doesn't handle massive fluctuations in temperature very well if it's zero degrees for three or five months of the year and it's 100 degrees three or five months of the year it's not going to like going back and forth because temperature fluctuations invite humidity and humidity is the enemy of brass and metal casings I'm assuming that one that fell apart then was a gift from Humongous who had it in his assless chaps for the last two or three years. (laughs) All that humidity, you've got to imagine, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Because moisture is even more dangerous than temperature fluctuations. Right. Because that will eat away at your metal. And you can scrub off corrosion and whatnot. But once it eats through enough, sure, it's just going to blow up in your face. Well, one of them, I think he has a misfire later in the film, doesn't he? When Max gets back to the rig, fires it up, and starts driving it back to the compound, Max is going to more or less come face to face with the Lord Humongous. Lord Humongous with his big Smith & Wesson 44 and Max with his sawed-off shotgun. Max is going to aim that shotgun at the humongous he's going to pull that trigger and this shell that he thinks is good is going to turn out to let him down so spoiler alert i guess so max has this shell and he's very proud to have it he pulls out his shotgun opens the breech and slides that shotgun shell into the gun revealing that his shotgun has been empty this entire time yeah how many times has he threatened people with his shotgun now to find out that it's empty It's all in the eyes, baby. He's Mad Max. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Sell it with your eyes. He pulled it out to intimidate Wes. He pulled it out at least once to intimidate the gyro captain, if I'm remembering right. Yes. 
and he pulls it out a third time on Monday. Except when he pulls it out on Monday, it's going to be loaded. <laughs> yeah. And we don't actually get to hear the gyro captain react to this discovery that the shotgun has been empty this entire time. We just get this look of... Surprise. I would say almost betrayal. Yeah. yeah. Like, you lied to me? <laughs> I was your captive and you lied to me. I think Jarrow Captain kind of likes him pretty early on, I think. I think Max takes a while to kind of understand that he's a, an honorable man to some degree. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I think... Uh, I mean, You see it kind of at the camp as well. Jarrow Captain's very much uh, tries to get people to like him. He's very kind of... Uh, wants to belong i think in some in some respects i think he likes uh max quite a lot but i think the it's not reciprocated is it not for a long time at least so they share that kind of look uh later in the film as they're kind of doing their last uh the death star run if you will mm -hmm. what's your favorite mad max look by the way one two or three i think i prefer his look here in road warrior i think he's yeah he's definitely grown into it by three wait he's, he's more sexy in three isn't he i think he's too clean in one but yeah well, one is a kind of strange beast because they kind of almost, and I think for the American release, they kind of threw it out the window and just treated this as the first movie, didn't they? They really did. They did, yeah. I saw this film first. I went, oh my God, there's, there's one prize to this? And then I saw it, I was like, oh, what's this? <laughs> there's a couple of called cool car chases, but it's this kind of like weird. And I saw actually, originally, it was the American dub. That's the oh. one I kind of grew up watching. So one of those yeah. kind of like really badly dubbed voices. So it was almost had a kind of a Kung Fu movie quality. It was like, yeah, it's that's him from the other film, but he's, his hair's nice and his jacket's like complete. It's very strange. I, What's going on? Yeah, why is he taking a vacation halfway through the movie? <laughs> when, when does he get angry? <laughs> yeah, if you sort your suit second, you're like, did he take a shower and get a new jacket? Why is everyone, it's like civilization has come back. It's very quick. I don't know. Yeah. They, it kind of became a bit self-aware by the third one as well, because like in the third one, his costume is like, it's, it is the same jacket, I think, but they put this kind of like a gingham type black Jedi robe over it, didn't they? Or under the jacket, rather. And he looks kind of more kind of... Uh, sexy it's a bit i describe it the same way you'd like say uh like in the first texas chainsaw mask it seems very real the way they've done leather faces max mask and in the later films it looks like kind of production design and it's kind mm -hmm. of like oh we know we're making a film now and it kind of loses that kind of reality to it so yeah i think two is the uh it's the one to go for yeah while we're talking about max and how he looks i have an interesting question so the gyro captain is talking about his recipe for snake and he talks about how a man's got to look after himself healthy mind healthy body Body, and he says, you are what you eat, I reckon. Now, the gyro captain lives by this, and he eats snakes. So he has that sort of snake charmer, snake oil salesman type personality to him. It seems sort of snake-like qualities. Max eats dog food. And so do you think that the gyro captain possesses those snake-like qualities? Do you think Max is more d canine in nature? What do you guys think? I don't know. I, the, he's kind of a cipher of a catch, really. You kind of can impress a, a, a lot. I think one, one of the reasons the film's successful is because he, he encompasses that man with no name quality. So I think... Uh... I think Max would eat snake. I think he'd just probably eat it raw, though. He doesn't have any of the kind of the, not the culture, as it were, but he just as that doesn't give a damn attitude. So I think he'd probably just bite the head off the snake and just eat it raw. <laughs> Whereas I think the gyro captain, perhaps pre, I guess, war or pre-apocalypse, was probably, uh, you know, an educated man, perhaps, or someone with some, some form of... Uh, culturedness really it'd like i'd like to at least think he is mm -hmm. or maybe he was a complete loser and now this is his chance to kind of shine though he can be i don't know that's certainly something i think you could uh 
exploring a film like this if someone just never could make it work in real life and then the end of the world happens and they suddenly become this kind of savior of humanity if you will i don't know julia what do you think of the whole thing does max possess canine qualities well when i think of dogs the first thing i think of is loyalty max doesn't really have any loyalty except to himself Mm -hmm. dogs like companionship they like being with other dogs they like being with their owners max doesn't really like being with anybody i kind of see him as a lone wolf yes yeah yeah more (laughs) wild yeah but the more time he spends with uh like the group further on he actually becomes more well i think it happens in i think all the films to some degree becomes more human the more time he spends around people and he becomes perhaps absorbed into the pack. So in that, uh, in that sense, I think he might be a little bit dog-like. But uh, I'd like the record to show that your answer was a lot better than mine. So, well <laughs> I do appreciate the uh, point you brought up, though. In a lot of these movies, Max starts off as a very solitary character. And as the runtime moves on, and this is true for Road Warrior and Thunderdome and Fury Road especially, the more time he spends with people, the more he's willing to do for those people. Mm. At the end of this movie, he is the one driving the distraction to give the rest of the compound people a way out. At the end of Thunderdome, he does a lot to help a large group of children that owe him nothing. Well, he's, I mean, he's driving to his death, really. It's only, I guess, because it's a movie he survives that crash at the end of the third one. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think, I would, like a lot of these kind of lone hero archetypes, the man with no name, Clint Eastwood, Han Solo, uh, maybe not so much Indiana Jones, because he's kind of a bit different, I think, but it's kind of that, uh, in this kind of crazy world, strangely... The guy that's kind of the loner and the kind of the hostile one has actually got the strongest and the strongest moral compass, perhaps, of any of the people, especially when he steps up and like gives of himself or sacrifices because he doesn't go on to the, uh, I guess, Valhalla or wherever these people are going at the end of this film. And certainly not the third one either. He kind of, uh, well, even in the the one with Tom Hardy, he kind of like melts into the crowd, doesn't he? He kind Mm -hmm. of does his job and then kind of just fades in. I think that was really well captured in the Tom Hardy version that uh, he just kind of like, they give each other that acknowledging look and then he kind of doesn't want any of that, uh, the reward, if you will, of uh, fresh water in this. He doesn't, uh, he rejects it almost, even though he kind of, has nurtured and saved that thing as he does in all these films he kind of goes i'm all right thanks and he kind of walks away never to be seen again apparently mm-hmm. as they say if you're going to cultivate a legend whether intentionally or unintentionally hanging around for too long overstaying your welcome is a good way to throw that out the window <laughs> and this is why i'm not a legend <laughs> <laughs> at gruff say a few words then just disappear into the night people are like oh who was that mysterious man and then you pop back in oh it was me yeah they still go he's still here why is he still here ask him to leave (laughs) (laughs) we've reached the end of minute 45 so we can do a bit of a end of the week recap to talk about what was happening on monday and catch everybody up for what they might have missed if they skipped over any episodes so monday we started off and it was a bit of a trek week so max left the compound in the dead of night and disappeared into the dark. It may 
traveling in the dark have helped him get past a lot of the prying eyes of the raiders, but it definitely didn't help him stay out of the ditches and the gullies that were in his path, because before Monday was over, he fell right on his butt, right into a big old hole. Well, he's dragging that giant log behind him as well, isn't he? I mean, he's carrying the, the gas for sure. The uh, the gyro captain was dragging the log. Yeah, so I'm just, I've skipped back to uh, minute 41. <laughs> as I'm, I'm recapping, I'm watching, I'm doing a, like a look, a turn and read, like a, an audio tape now with what you're saying. Right. Hmm. So on Tuesday, which was actually our Halloween episode. It was also probably the darkest minute of this entire movie because it takes place exclusively at night. We saw Max having to be very quiet and stay out of sight as Bearclaw Mohawk, our raider for the evening, came snooping to the edge of the gully looking for someone who made a noise that he heard. Luckily for Max, the feral child was there and decided to help him out by providing some animal mimicry skills to make the raider think that the noise was just some wild dogs. He has a lovely fur gilet on. Very nice. Very stylish. (laughs) (laughs) After that, we saw Max pick up the gas cans again and move along his way. The feral child gave him some impromptu pointing directions, and Max was able to get past all of the raiders and get back up to the top of the pinnacles where he was camped out with the gyro captain who had... uh, mysteriously disappeared and we ended up catching up with the gyro captain on thursday where we discovered that he had been walking all day dragging that log behind him but max and the dog were too quick for him and caught up and freed him from the log but also gave him a new responsibility of dragging the gas cans instead i like his panicked little kind of like uh physical twitch kind of of shock that he has when he sees like he's being caught by Yep, (laughs) he's got his goggles down you can just see what he's thinking. <laughs> yeah, it's not an ideal situation to think that you are mostly free and then to be subsequently captured once again. <laughs> so even if I may, mm-hmm. what initially attracted you to the Mad Max series of movies? I don't know. I think uh, I actually didn't. I grew up with like Raiders and Star Wars and like The Thing and Halloween. Saw lots of horror films. My brother was dating this girl that's father owned a video store so i kind of rented texas chainsaw massacre when i was like eight and stuff weirdly didn't pay either very nice uh, <laughs> or did i pay later with like i don't know psychologically who knows uh, i actually saw mad max 2 on holiday in tenerife uh i got sunburns and there was a video player in the room and there was like uh i guess on the resort there was a kind of a v8 another video store and i rented mad max 2 so i didn't know anything about it i just saw the poster and thought it looked like a horror film and that was kind of my start with it <laughs> And I just thought it was fantastic. It was kind of weird. It wasn't like an American film, even though I assumed it was like an American, like I said, like uh, the apocalypse had happened and this is what America looked like. It was kind of had a different style, I guess, to like the mainstream American horror and sci-fi I'd seen. So it kind of like stuck in my head. It was only like later, I guess, when you got like, uh, I guess, more self-aware of what was coming out, would pay attention to trailers and like magazines and stuff that I went, oh, Mad Max, there's another, like when Mad Max 3 came out. I was like, oh, what's this? There's another Mad Max. Weirdly, though, I never saw Mad Max 3 until much, much later. I think in the late 90s when I bought the trilogy on Blu-ray. So I'd seen only two and I'd seen bits of one and was like, what's this? This isn't Mad Max. So I kind of like (laughs) weirdly abandoned it. And then, yeah, I bought them all on DVD when DVD became a thing in like 1998. And it was like, I could never afford laser discs growing up. So I kind of had, was this like kid in a candy store then. It was like these cheaply available things with special features and commentaries. So I really didn't have the trilogy in my life until like the late 90s. 
there's just something weirdly addictive and alluring about it. I think it's affected everyone in the same way. It's always like stuck in people's heads. I mean, you can argue like back or forth, which is the best one out of the new one versus this one. I think it's this one because it's kind of, it's all real. Does that, well, you're not going to see it yet, listeners or viewers, but you know, does that stunt coming with that coming up where that guy almost dies? And does that like multiple spin off the crashing motorcycle? There's such mm-hmm. like a raw kind of visceral reality to this film. It's, I don't know, it's just, it's got this weird weird quality to it and it, it like you said it's uh i said rather it's uh it does have this kind of weird arch way the way it's been put together the way it's filmed because it was low budget it has that kind of like rawness like i said that uh perhaps a texas chainsaw massacre has where it's kind of like a visceral experience it's not just a film and that kind of like you know great guns like balls to the wall ending where they're just channeling and running down that motorway with the with the trucks and driving over each other the people getting caught in the wheels it was like it was quite uh, an experience for a young mind to, to be like taking in. So yeah, it's been with my much of my life since the age of about eight or nine. And uh, just this film in particular, I mean, you can take or leave perhaps arguably uh, the third or the first one. I think the third one has lots of good qualities to it. And then it kind of goes down the toilet when he leaves Barter Town. Uh <laughs> I think that's a, probably a laugh of semi-agreement there. I don't know. You'll come to that, I guess. Uh, and I think they recaptured the magic perhaps with the fourth one with Tom Hardy. But seeing the recent film, if anyone's seen it, Bloodfather, where Mel Gibson plays this tattoo artist trying to get back his daughter. Uh, there's a scene in that where he's got the sunglasses on and he's uh, racing down the highway on a Harley and he turns the bike around, stops it and shoots a shotgun. And at that moment, I thought, we we so could have got Mel. I know he's in like director and actor jail because he's, a bit of a drinker and a, a, a guilty Catholic and a billionaire sociopath. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it would be nice to see, uh, would have seen him in perhaps Fury Road. Because I knew he was going to be in it, wasn't he, around 2004? That's when they were supposed to make it. And then there was some issue with, I'm not sure if it was the war, the, the second Gulf War perhaps, or what was going on. Because they planned to shoot it, I think, in the Middle East, hadn't they? I think so. And then it all just kind of went away. And then I guess they were gearing up to do it again. And then Mel like literally put his foot in his mouth uh, one after insulting that uh, female police officer, I think, calling her sugar <laughs> in 2007. And then, uh, th- like I said, the Mel Gibson tapes, which you can hear on uh, YouTube, he kind of sank his own ship and they, I guess they got Tom Hardy in. But uh, I don't know, I would really love to have seen him take on this character again. It's kind of his signature role. Tom Hardy seemed a bit... Uh, not present I think in the new film I'm not sure how you felt about it but uh, I desperately miss Mel in that role yeah I'm very much looking forward long way down the road yeah when we eventually get to Mad Max Fury Road just looking very closely at the differences between Tom Hardy and Mel Gibson because yeah they're just drastically different presences yeah for sure I think because also Mel I mean literally has that madness in him I think that kind of weirdly comes across in all his roles I mean say about the man what you will but uh I mean my girlfriend past girlfriend at the time she was like what I tried to show her like films like she's like what's all the fuss like why is everyone like lord over these (laughs) 80s films and stuff and then I showed her films like uh Lethal Weapon Mad Max I showed her like uh the the, the Beverly Hills Cop films Mm -hmm. and then she's like oh I can't I understand now why these people perhaps not around now but understand why they were such gigantic stars at the time because they have that like that magical quality that like you can put on a soap opera and there's actors on there and they're good actors and you can watch a movie and there's good actors but they don't have that like like this draw to them there's something weird the camera seems to love every angle of their head and they just have this like uh like i said this magical uh charisma Mm -hmm. tom cruise as crazy as he is has that very thing especially in like the early films there's this like magnetic uh screen presence you can't quite put your finger on it 
it's uh it's a strange thing it's something you can't teach i guess it's uh it's that like that magic that that flicker of light between the eye and the camera and somewhere in the middle the, the star is born and not everyone kind of has that very few actually and uh mel gibson for all his faults <laughs> certainly has that so it's uh it'll be nice to see him kind of uh get back on his feet and sadly as i said before the the loss of him as mad max i deeply felt watching uh, fury road even though tom hardy's great i just felt like he was a uh, well i mean he was kind of a passenger in his own film and it was kind of more uh charlie's theron's movie mm. so uh that had added to the the lack of mel the rest of it was amazing <laughs> <laughs> why do you guys like it so much anyway let's let's flip the question on you guys what's uh like what's the uh the big pull i mean is it mainly the road warrior you like or you like all of them like him bits and then the road warrior is the main thing or what was what drew you guys to mad max like did you see it growing up or anything like that i watched thunderdome growing up i think without even knowing that there was more to the story that there were two previous films and then as I got older, I became aware of Road Warrior, but I don't think I ever saw it. Yeah. And then it wasn't until a couple of years ago that Rick made me watch the original Mad Max. Mm -hmm. I had never, I didn't even know what the story was about or anything. This was a completely new movie to me. It's, this is like an exact mirror of me then, isn't it? It's, there must yes. be like a million guys out there going, you've got to see this movie to like... Uh significant others or girlfriends or female friends <laughs> yes that's exactly how it happened yeah. when i was a kid and you know we only had five or six television channels you would get network television that would license movies to show on saturday and sunday afternoons and that's where i first saw road warrior right was a simple tv edit and i fell in love with the series from then and so as i grew up i would watch road warrior every instance i got and then i discovered Thunderdome and of course watched that because they actually showed Thunderdome on TV more often than Road Warrior because Thunderdome was easier to edit down for TV. Yeah. Being PG-13 as opposed to R. And as I got older, then I discovered that Road Warrior was not the first one in the series. Went back and watched the first one and I thought it was great. Had some awesome parts to it. It uh, didn't necessarily have the same aesthetic yeah. as Road Warrior and Thunderdome for sure, but no less enjoyable on that part. So first chance I get, I feel that I have the opportunity to show it to Julia. I, you know, like she said, sat her down. <laughs> we watched it. And when it came time that we were thinking of starting a podcast, I was thinking of all of these movies that you could build a podcast around. And I thought, well, why not Mad Max? Because each one in the series is very enjoyable to watch, get plenty of conversation out of it. And before I knew it, I'd registered the domain and <laughs> we started making the podcast. And after all of the time that we sat down and watched that first movie, mm. uh, I forget when we were talking about it, but I think, Julia, you said that the first Mad Max is currently your favorite of the series. Yes, it is. What? Cut a mic, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the first one is my favorite. And I'm not sure if that's a product of that's the one that I have analyzed the most. Yeah. And spent so much time with. So maybe once I get through all four movies, I can reevaluate which one is my favorite. Mm -hmm. I just, yeah, I think I spoiled it for myself by seeing the second one. I think everyone comes to a different one first, don't they? Yes. And then you, you either back into the second one or you start with the second one. And then I guess you pick your favorite from there. But yeah, I think because I saw this one first, that set the benchmark. And then, like I said, catching up with the first one going, what, 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 what is this? <laughs> yes, it's like, this is very, it's a very It's like some movie. Australian police drama with these amazing chases in the middle of it. And then, yeah, it kind of ends strangely as well, doesn't it? He catches the guy and then, like, blows him up and then it just cuts to black creation. Like, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I yep. I love that first movie because it just has a heart and a sadness and an intensity to it mm. that some of these later movies just have in a different quantity. Yeah, they became more, well, they became more Hollywoodized. I mean, the third one especially is this very kind of like easy to look at. They tuzzled Mel's hair so he looks kind of like sexy and stuff and he's like, he's, his jacket's a little <laughs> bit more polished and he's got some more kind of shiny belts on and things and it's it looks very it's like it's, i always draw the comparison like i said to the texas chainsaw you've got that first very raw and i think it's also a testament of the filmmaking george miller was a, a, a doctor wasn't he? he kind of threw all his money into making this wacky stunt film yep that turned out to be mad max that launched his career and i think you can see that like in the film i mean it's still like the first one like there's still some like some of the best stunts ever captured on film. I mean, death defying. I mean, people like literally risking life and limb. And you, that really does come across in the second one as well. And then by the time you get to the third one, it's like, well, it's, this is all very like perfectly set up and it's very safely shot and there are more professionals working on it. And it kind of loses something, I think, because of that. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it is, uh, they're very alive, the first two films, I think. But I just I prefer the second one. Yeah, it's amazing what you can do when you don't know what you're not supposed to do. Uh, yes (laughs) when you're not bogged down by all of those rules of production safety what what are you talking about (laughs) it was interesting to hear george miller talk about his experience going from mad max in 1979 to the road warrior in 1981 where road warrior was his sophomore effort and he learned so much Mm. from doing mad max that all of those lessons he applied to his second movie yeah And I think that's why Road Warrior is widely regarded as a superior movie, because it's him going back with a refined touch. Like Sam Raimi on Evil Dead 2. Exactly. Many of the same elements, but more polished. Exactly. There are a lot of people that will talk about the Evil Dead series, and you can go back and you can watch that first Evil Dead movie. I won't stop you. But Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn, is essentially the same movie as Evil Dead. Oh, yeah. But with a higher budget and much more charm. Yeah, well, I mean that's that. I mean, even outside of horror circles, that comes up. I th- isn't that one of the top one hundred films of all time? I think it's in some kind of like. Uh, I know it certainly comes up in like top thirties or forties that I've seen. That it's like not just like a great, I guess, horror film. But even though it's not, it's more funny. But it's uh, it's basically a Warner Brothers cartoon made real, isn't it? Essentially, <laughs> with Bruce Campbell's amazing reverse acting, as uh, Sam Raimi puts it. So I don't think I have much else. On uh, my end, Julia, do you have anything? No, I think that about wraps it up. Ethan, is there anything you wanted to bring up with us before we wrap? Uh, no, I just wanted to say thank you so much for having me on. I do enjoy my little sojourns as a guest on all these uh, minute shows where I can like I can dip in and I haven't got the pressure of going, oh God, we've got to knock out five shows a week. We need to find a guest. <laughs> yes. What's going on? I can I can now like, uh, is it Scheidenfreude where I can like gloat and go, oh, that's, that's, that's their work to do now. I can just like come in as a tourist and go, hi everyone, like a rear the shelves and then i can like i can leave it's uh it's good <laughs> you've absolutely earned that going through that many terminator movies i know right i think we're like 400 episodes of something ridiculous it was a it's a labor of love so ethan if people want to hear more of your charming british accent where can they find you online well folks if you're not annoyed uh by me at this point well done thank you for staying with it uh uh Thank you. I love you. Uh, you can find me at ethanmckinley.com. Uh, you can find me at the Two Minute Terminator on iTunes. Uh, you can also see the video version of that show. Yes, every single episode uh, on YouTube at uh, Two Minute Terminator. And you can find my other show, Questionable EMC, 
which is either me inv uh, interviewing a guest or I'm uh, doing some kind of like uh, breakdown of uh, a film or a trailer or some aspect of the filmmaking industry, which I've been doing for the last uh, few months, basically. My latest one, I think, was on George Lucas, and it's getting uh, equal hate and love uh, on YouTube. So there we go. <laughs> and if you want to send some abuse via Twitter, you can send it to Ethan McKinley UK. That's where you can find me. Spectacular. But no, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for uh, having me on. It's been uh, lovely meeting uh, more people in the uh, the Minute family. And like I said, able to just come and have a little holiday from myself and uh, talk on someone else's show as I was opposed to having the panic and the deadline of uh, getting my own show out. So thank you. I've had a lovely time. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for agreeing to come on with us. So as for our show... We are going to come back on Monday. We're going to, like I said, see the gyro captain's reaction to the discovery that Max has been more or less shooting blanks this whole time, and we're going to get his reaction on Monday, so come back for that. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 40 of the Road Warrior. Have a great weekend. This may be a, a silly question because I'm assuming the answer is yes, but is there any way you can get pre-prepared canned snake like a commercially available product <laughs> i'm pretty sure you can get snake pre-butchered right from certain sources i'm unsure if it's can be found canned hmm. but we I have the internet so. and snake yeah meat. i would be perfectly willing to try snake as long as i didn't have to fight with it oh here's something good i just jumped on amazon and it's only rated two stars after 18 customer reviews, and it costs $24 per... Get it, whatever it is. 75-ounce mm -hmm. can. Okay. That's a little big. That is big. That's a big yeah, snake, that's a, maybe, I guess. I think it's 7.5-ounce okay. can. You can get eels, I know that for a fact, because like, it's, it's like very much associated with like the cockneys of like of London, or especially like at the turn of the century, and you can still kind of get it today. Jelly eels, you've ever heard of that? No. It's like, it's an eel, eels chopped up into chunks, and it's like kept in jelly, almost like uh, head cheese kind of stuff that you perhaps get with an English pork pie. Uh, jelly eels, it's, uh, it sounds disgusting, it looks awful, but if you Google it, you'll see it's like uh, jars of eels, basically. Wow. Yeah. That's okay. why I asked a snake question, you see. Yeah, so canned, <laughs> edible, smoked rattlesnake. You can buy it on Amazon. Like I said, it doesn't have that great review, but frequently bought together is the canned smoked rattlesnake also a edible dehydrated zebra tarantula and moroccan octopus jerky you can buy all three of those together for only 56 bucks yeah, I've seen those in Selfridges in London. It's a bit like Harrods. It's like the other kind of big store. I mean, I think you've got a show with Jeremy Pivening called Mr. Selfridge, the originator of that kind of large department store. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, and they sell things like that 
like uh, tarant tarantulas and stuff like baked tarantula and all they've did kind of like weird uh foods i think they just bought more for a novelty why did anyone would have like a, a cupboard full of those things and be snapping the legs off a, a spider and putting in your nacho cheese I, I i have no idea why but what do i know I'm although here. from an american perspective smothering just about anything in nacho cheese does sound like a viable cooking method it could work <laughs> <Or a snake. laughs> 